0: I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, and I'll be reading from verse 14 until seven. chapter 7, verse 13, Exodus chapter 6, verse 14, and I will be reading the genealogy, so hang tight, Genesis 6, verse 14, these are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him, Aaron, and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar... Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas, These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. "'Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you.' But Moses said to the Lord, "'Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me?' And the Lord said to Moses, "'See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart.'" And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Let's bow in prayer. Father, in this season of thanksgiving, we pause to give you thanks for your word. It is living and active. It divides us to the very core of who we are. It speaks to us and instructs us in your word. It corrects us when we're on the wrong way. It trains us in paths of righteousness. And we thank you, Father, that you would give us your living word to reveal Yourself to our minds. And we thank You for Your Spirit who comes and takes Your Word and applies it to us. And we pray that You would do that this morning. Take what we've read, help us to understand it, to live by what we learn from Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Exodus could be described as a book of a battle between God and Pharaoh. The battle is severe and intense. We know who the victor will be. Makes me consider, as I think of this section of Exodus, a text from Romans. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 is a famous passage. And it's a passage that if you get this one in your mind and heart, shapes the way that you see everything. It's a worldview passage. It's a passage by which you see everything else. It's a truth so significant that you can look at anything in the world and see it through the lens of this truth. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 finds the Apostle Paul glorying in the greatness of God. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When you accept this, you look at the whole world differently, because you accept the truth that all things are from God, That means he's the creator of everything, that his purposes for everything will stand. Everything is through him. It means all things are sustained by him and executed through his plan and purposes. All things are to him. That means everything exists to glorify God. Combining this with the idea of Exodus being a battle, it makes me think of, that phrase from David, the battle is the Lord's. It's from him and through him and to him. This battle in Exodus is from him and through him and to him. That phrase, the battle is the Lord's, comes when young David hears the antagonizing Philistine, Goliath, taunting the armies of the God of Israel. And David stands up to that Philistine and says, you come to me with a sword And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David recognizes that all things are from him, through him, and to him, including this battle. The battle is the Lord's. It will originate from him, will be sustained by him, and it will be to his glory. At this point in the book of Exodus, we come to a bit of a turning point. The first opening chapters, 1 through 5, have been, in a sense, an introduction to what's going to happen here. We've seen that Israel is enslaved in Egypt. They've been in bondage. They've experienced horrible oppression from their Egyptian taskmasters. But we've also learned that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is a God who cares about his people, and he promises to them that he will act to deliver them. And in the fulfillment of that promise, he summons Moses at the burning bush to be the one who will go into Egypt. But we know Moses is a reluctant deliverer who finds excuses at every point for why he is not the one to go. But God compels him nonetheless. And Moses and his brother Aaron go to Egypt to try to get things moving for this deliverance. And as they go and meet with Pharaoh the first time, things get catastrophically worse. Because Pharaoh denies them their request to let the people go to worship God, and instead enacts a more severe task upon the Egyptians that now they have to make bricks without him providing straw for them. But this all sets the stage for what's going to unfold in the next chapters. The real battle begins. And you know, if you've read Exodus, that beginning in chapter 7, the plagues, the ten plagues, the horrible plagues are about to begin. But we go through this transition that leads us into this great battle. It's really the beginning of the battle. And we remember as we come through this book of Exodus, although it's very much about the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and fulfillment of God's promise, it also s- paints for us a picture of the kind of God we have, a delivering God, a saving God. He doesn't just deliver from physical slavery, but a God who sent His Son to deliver His people from their sin and from death. And so this book continues to paint for us the picture of a God who delivers. As we work through this text, I think we'll see that as God begins this battle, that the battle is from the Lord, the battle is through the Lord, and the battle is to the Lord. We learn this so that we will rely on Him and be faithful to what He calls us to do. First, the battle is from the Lord. The battle is from the Lord. As He prepares for this battle to bring His people out of Egypt and bring the plagues on the Egyptians, we know that God has been preparing this battle for quite some time. Going back to Genesis chapter 15, Verses 13 and 14, the Lord spoke to Abram, and he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's a summary of the first half of the book of Exodus, hundreds of years before it happens. It acknowledges that God knows that his people, the descendants of Abram, will be in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, and then God will bring them out in judgment on the nation that they served. It's a pretty good summary of the book of Exodus, and it shows us that the battle is from the Lord because he's been preparing this hundreds of years even before the people of Israel were in Egypt. When we think about the battle being from the Lord, and we may have a hard time relating to the Egyptians, we remember that in Acts chapter 14, describes Paul's ministry among the churches that he's just planted. And he's going from church to church, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that to be true. You know that this life is not a cakewalk, that there are many battles that we, are, in a sense, are led through. And we have to know that it's from the Lord. He's told us beforehand that these things are going to happen. Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three that in this world you will have trouble. The battle is from the Lord. He's the one who knows it's going to happen, even the one who sovereignly appoints it to happen. In the book of Exodus in chapter 6, something surprising happens, however, that doesn't seem battle like at all. It's a genealogy. I know how you read the Bible when you see this list of names. It's not the place that you go in the morning for your devotion to get inspiration for the day ahead. I know that because I know how I read the Bible, and it's hard to find great encouragement from a list of names, but it's not a random insertion to the text. It's purposeful. The author has it there to serve a purpose, and I think the purpose it serves is to show the battle is from the Lord. Let's make a few observations about this genealogy that begins in Exodus 6, verse 14. Make a few observations. The first observation about it is that it's not a complete genealogy. It begins with the first three sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And if you don't know the family of Jacob, he had 12 sons, but it stops at his third son. It only goes to the third. It doesn't go on to Judah and the rest. It leaves that part blank. That's the first observation. It's that it's not complete It stops rather abruptly, but that's purposeful. The second observation is that it is focused on Levi. It's focused on Levi. If you notice for these guys, Reuben and Simeon, it lists their sons just to the first generation. But when it gets to Levi, it goes on for five generations after Levi. Reuben and Simeon are kind of glossed over, and then really the focus is on Levi. But the third observation is not only is it focused on Levi, it's focused on Levi's son, Kohath. It's focused on him. The other sons of Levi are mentioned, but they don't get as much attention as Kohath. Kohath gets four generations going beyond him. And then from that comes the fourth observation that it focuses on Levi's grandsons, Amram and Itzar. And then the genealogy follows Amram, who is the, wife of, or is the husband of Jochebed, who if you read it, it turns out to be his aunt, who's the father to Aaron and Moses. And then we get Aaron's sons and Aaron's grandson, Phineas. The fifth observation is that there are some recogni- recognizable names might recognize the name Korah. If you read the book of Numbers, you know about that awful rebellion that Aaron and Moses' cousin Korah led because he didn't feel it was fair that Moses and Aaron got all the recognition. Or you know the name Levi, who with his brother Simeon went and executed that awful slaughter of the people who defiled their sister. Or the names Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered strange fire before the Lord and were consumed by the Lord, they were killed. Or you know the name Eleazar, the son of Aaron, who became high priest after Aaron. Or the name Phineas, whose zeal for the Lord led him to kill a man and woman who were having sex in the precinct of the Lord's tabernacle. And it pleased the Lord. And Phineas becomes known Joshua and Judges. The sixth observation, and last about this, is that it's surrounded by the same story. In chapter 6, verse 10, it has the Lord telling Moses to go into Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go, and Moses responds reluctantly. And at the end, after this genealogy, in verse 26, it says again that the Lord had said to Aaron and Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And Moses again responds reluctantly. So those are the observations. Now, what conclusions can we draw from this? First, is that this genealogy is meant to point us to Moses and Aaron. This isn't hard to conclude because in verse 26 it says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said. And then in verse 27, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh. And this Moses and this Aaron. The text is letting us know who these guys are. You may know their names, but this orients them or frames them within a greater family structure. It lets us know it's this Aaron and this Moses, whose father is Amram, whose mother is Jochebed, whose nephews are Nadab or sons Nadab and Abihu, cousins are Korah, grandfather is Kohath, whose great-grandfather is Levi. It shows us where this Aaron and this Moses come from. And I take this to mean that reality matters. It's showing us a real lineage of real people who really existed in space and time. They're real characters. This is not myth. It reminds us that these events occurred with real living human beings. These events happened in the same world in which we exist. The second conclusion is that it's pointing us to the past and to the future. The genealogy looks back to Levi, who is dead at the start of Exodus, and looks forward to Phineas, who doesn't really come on the scene until Numbers. It shows us that this is pointing to the past of God's faithfulness and His planning and His purposing and His future, that there is more to come. That this book of Exodus isn't over, that there's more still to happen. It points us to a future reality from the standpoint of Exodus. In the past, God is preparing a people and a structure of a family that is going to be in Egypt. And it shows us the future, that there is a continuation of this family. And again, if we're to summarize, the battle is from the Lord, He's been preparing. This family to be in Egypt, with this structure, with this Aaron, with this Moses, to bring about his purposes and plans. The third conclusion is that it points us to the fact that God's plan for people, comes to pass through people. So focus genealogy on the, those who are descended from Abraham, those who are going to inherit the promises God made to their ancestors. And it shows us that the way that God works for people is through people. He's going to use this Aaron and this Moses to bring to pass his good purposes. Finally, it proves to us, or we conclude, that genealogies in the Bible point us to Jesus Christ. As you read the rest of the Old Testament, there are a lot of genealogies, particularly in Chronicles. That's a hard one to read, page after page of names. And yet these are important because they lay out for the real flesh and blood that inhabit the pages of Scripture, real people who really lived. And it shows us that God is working out and orchestrating the fulfillment of his plan through people and to people. He's working out these things through a real family line. And it's really all converging into the great genealogy that converges on the person of Jesus Christ. So when you come to the first page of the New Testament, you have another genealogy. And the fulfillment of that genealogy is Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... As you work your way through the Old Testament and you read genealogy after genealogy and you come to the New Testament and the first page is a genealogy and then there's Luke 3 that has a genealogy. You'll notice something unique though. Once you get past Matthew 1 and Luke 3, there are no more genealogies. The reason for that is because these are all leading us to the coming of Jesus Christ who fulfills all the purposes that God has We'll still find a lot of names in the New Testament. At the end of Romans, for example, there is a list of name after name after name, not of people who are united by as a blood relative, but people who nonetheless belong to the family of God. And we find that now the family tree of the people of God progresses not through physical lineage, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that all those who know Christ and trust Jesus Christ are linked to God's good purposes and experience his salvation. Yes, we're united by blood, but not blood that runs through our veins, the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled on the cross. This genealogy back in Exodus chapter 6 shows us God has been preparing for these moments where he will bring his people out of Egypt, The battle is from the Lord. Second, the battle is to the Lord. The battle is to the Lord. To say that the battle is to the Lord means that He is the one who will receive the glory. God is the one who will receive the glory in the battle. This can be At times hard to swallow because the tactics that God uses to bring himself glory are not the tactics that we would use. If we were to enter battle with the power that God possesses, we would do something like this. We would snap our fingers, make everybody who's against us become a Christian, and we all live in harmony immediately. That's the way that we would do it. That's not the way that God does it. Romans 11 says that the judgments of God are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. That means that the way that God does things are not the way that we would do them. And the reason he does the things that he does, the way that he does them, is because that is the way that his glory will be maximally revealed and made known. It'd be a tough pill to swallow when we experience this in real life. That God doesn't do things the way that we would want them to do or to be done. Now, we can take confidence pretty readily that the victory is the Lord's. We have said and heard a number of believers say, I've read the book, I know how it ends. We know that God wins. That's where it's all going. God is going to be victorious. We want to be on the right side of history. We want to be with God. We know that He's the one who's going to be victorious. But we don't always like the way that He brings about His victory. So the difficulty is not so much believing that He will win. The difficulty can be believing that the way things are going now are part of his perfect plan to bring about his perfect victory. That's where faith for us gets challenged. Believing that the way things are going now are part of his perfect plan to bring about his perfect victory. God is not snapping his fingers and immediately bringing the transformation that we would bring if we were in his shoes we would like it there to be no dissent no affliction no resistance against his people and his ways but there is all the time this is why we have to remember that the battle is to the lord it is for his glory his wisdom is so profoundly higher than ours that he would do things completely contrary to the way we would do things. And yet the purpose is to his glory. Jesus prays in John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God knows what glorifies him, and he knows what is good for us, And so the battle is to the Lord. When Moses is told by the Lord in verse 29 of chapter 6 to bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts, he's challenged again to the task that God has given him. And then in verse 29, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. We meet reluctant Moses again. He questions God. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? How is Pharaoh going to listen to a man like Moses? Moses is bringing up again that he's got an extra flap of skin on his lips that makes it hard to speak, and he's going into this world ruler. How is Moses going to be listened to by Pharaoh? It's a legitimate question in a sense. We can understand why he would ask that. God's answer to him is in chapter 7, verse 4 Pharaoh will not listen to you. Moses asks, How will Pharaoh listen to me? Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. This is so counterintuitive. God has just told Moses, tell Pharaoh all that I tell you. How is he going to listen to me? And God's answer, he's not going to listen to you. And yet the Lord works in this way frequently in Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, 9 and 10, Isaiah is being commissioned for his prophetic ministry And he is told by God, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's a hard ministry. He's going to blind people's eyes. Jesus takes this and applies it in his ministry in Matthew chapter 13. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus goes so far. In Matthew 11, he thanks the Lord for this. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. It would be confounding to be in Moses' shoes, to be told, Go and speak all that I command you. How will he listen to me? He won't listen to you. What we have to realize is that God is doing more here in Exodus than just saving his people. He is both saving his people Israel And judging their enemies in Egypt. He's doing both at the same time. Can you accept that God is doing more than one thing at the same time? He is both judging and saving. This is why we will see for the next several chapters the plagues on Egypt, those horrible plagues. Because God is going to stretch out his powerful hand not just to deliver his people from slavery but also to judge those who enslaved them. One of the most powerful presentations of this in the New Testament is in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5-10. through This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Did you catch that? In one act, Jesus is coming to bring relief to his saints and to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does both at the same time. As Moses is told what to do, it seems as though he's coming to the realization that God is not just delivering his people, but he's also bringing judgment on those who afflict his people. He calls Moses in chapter 7, verse 1: see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. It's not that Moses is God. He doesn't possess the attributes of God. He's not everlasting to everlasting. He's not omniscient and omnipotent, but he will represent God to Pharaoh so that all that Moses says to Pharaoh will be as if God is speaking directly to Pharaoh. Moses is representing God. In a similar way, not an exact way, we remember that human beings are made in the image of God. That image has been corrupted through sin, but those who are in Christ are made new, being made new in the image of Christ, and now we bear his image to the world. The church is Christ's body, his hands and his feet. And we make him known in the world as we proclaim the gospel. That's why how people treat Christians who have the saving message of Christ, who are made new in Christ Jesus, how people treat Christians really reflects how they will treat Christ himself. That's why Christ will come to inflict vengeance on those who do not believe or obey the gospel. Moses has this huge task, but it's really a simple one. His huge task is to represent God to Pharaoh. But it's simple because his command is straightforward. Chapter 7, verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you. It's not complicated. That's all it is. Speak all that I command you. That's the job. He doesn't need to invent the message that's been given to him. He doesn't need to invent the miracles those have been given to him. All he needs to do is do what God has told him to do. But to hear what Moses' question is, how will Pharaoh listen to me? We think for a moment that's a legitimate question, but when you understand what God's job is for Moses, it's not a legitimate question. The the job is to speak all that I have given to you. The job is not to make Pharaoh hear. That's not his job. He gets intimidated when he begins to try to take on a job that he has not been assigned. We mix up our jobs so often it brings a burden on us that we can't bear. God has called us to simple faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Or Jesus says it this way in Luke 17:10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Moses gets tripped up because he thinks his job is to make Pharaoh hear. That's not his job. We get tripped up. We think it's our job to make people hear, to make people saved, to make people believe. It's not our job. We get tripped up because we think it's our job to create the perfect children, the perfect spouse, the perfect boss, the perfect bank account, the perfect evangelistic spiel, perfect health, perfect friends. It's not our job. He has not assigned us to do that. All that Moses was given to do was tell Pharaoh all that I say to you. Can you live in the humble posture of being a faithful servant? Doing things that may not make sense to you all the time. Being willing to take God at his word and not extrapolate beyond that. And leave the battle to the Lord. Because the battle is to the Lord, it's for His glory. He is accomplishing in your service, or in Pharaoh's service more than you know, or in Moses' service, more than you know. Here's what God is going to do. Verse four, or verse three, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart." though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And here's why. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The battle is to the Lord. He will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen, which will drive these plagues to pour out on Egypt so that Egypt will know that Yahweh is God. Remember in chapter 5, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He and the Egyptians are going to learn that Yahweh is the God who judges and brings vengeance on those who afflict his people. The battle is to the Lord in that he will get glory in salvation and he will get glory in judgment. Moses and Aaron, it says, did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. These octogenarians are being used of the Lord In their fullness now, to bring about the full purposes of God that extend beyond our simple service. The battle is to the Lord, it's for his glory. It's from him, he's been preparing for it. It's to him, it's for his glory. Finally and briefly, the battle is through the Lord. It's through the Lord. It happens by his power. It happens by his power. God is rolling along his plans well before we are aware of them. And he conducts his battle plan differently than we would do it if we were to choose the means by which he would do it. His tactics are different than ours. And as the battle begins, we would conclude that the enemies of God don't stand a chance, they don't have a chance. But as this battle begins, Moses and Aaron are sent to Pharaoh. They're given by God a miracle that they can work to prove their credibility in case Pharaoh asks for them to do a sign, which he apparently does. So they come into Pharaoh's presence. Aaron throws down the staff. And it turns into a serpent. Meant to illustrate that God has this great power, that Moses and Aaron have been summoned by God for this task, and they have the credibility of true workers of God. But in that moment when the snake is slithering there on the ground, Pharaoh seems to look at the snake, call in his magicians, who by their secret arts, likely collaboration with demonic powers, are able to throw down their staffs and create serpents themselves. The significance of the sign of the serpent is this. Uh, Egyptologists note the prominence of the serpent in ancient Egypt culture. You probably all have seen that image of uh, King Tut's burial mask, that gold mask. And you see on the crown of his head, it's coming out from right here, a serpent. Pharaoh would wear that as a sign of his power. One commentator states that the serpent-crested diadem of Pharaoh symbolized all the power, sovereignty, and magic with which the gods endued the king. The power of a serpent represented the power of Pharaoh who was a deified king, someone who was thought to be a god. So when Aaron And Moses, throw down that staff, and it turns into a serpent in the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh likely thinks, you're on my turf. That's mine. And he summons his magicians to come and shows that this is his power, that he is the one who has the power of a serpent at his disposal. And for a moment, you could think that at this time, God has chosen a battle that he's going up against an equal power It looked for an instant like the serpent sign was going to be credible, but then you see these other serpents from the magicians of Pharaoh slithering around, and you're compelled to ask, has God met his match? Is God going toe-to-toe with a power that's equaled by his enemy? You could think for a moment, Moses and Aaron begin thinking, that was the wrong sign. It should have been an elephant or a mongoose or something that could take down that snake. Think this was this wasn't right. Why'd you choose a serpent? They're on Pharaoh's territory, and for a moment it looked like the power of God was insufficient for the task of the battle. It just for a moment looked like God had met his match. Just for a moment, it looked like Jesus of Nazareth has met his match. When he went to the cross and he died and hung there looking like a crucified criminal. And for a moment, it looked like God's Messiah had met his match. He met in a foe that he could not overcome. It looked for a moment like this whole plan of God to put his stamp of approval on Jesus of Nazareth was wrong move. He wasn't the one. It wasn't good enough. The power of God had met its match in death. And it looked like that. For just a moment, until the tomb of Christ was shown to be empty. In Christ, the victor over death comes to life. And as Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 says, he will swallow up death forever. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. For a moment, it looks like God may have met his match. For a moment, it looks like it's not the right sign. It wasn't the right move. But just for a moment. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yeah, they're on Pharaoh's turf. But the universe belongs to the Lord. The battle is through the power of the Lord. Still, it says and. Exodus 7, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The battle is from the Lord. He's the one who's been preparing for this. The battle is to the Lord. It is for his glory. And the battle is through the Lord. It's through his incomparable power. All we're called to do is to be faithful and remember that this universe and the battles that are engaged in are for the glory of the Lord. Are you, being, are you willing to be used of Him? Go according to His word, not yours, and be willing for Him to both be bringing about salvation and judgment simultaneously. We submit to Him in His ways. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have, for us, who know Christ, brought salvation. And we tremble at the thought of the judgment that you bring on those who don't know you. And Lord, we are not sufficient for the battle that you've placed us in, the tribulations and trials. But Lord, we would acknowledge to you that these are from you and through you and to you. Help us to remember and trust that. May you be glorified in our lives as we humbly serve you. And may you accomplish all of your perfect purposes and plans. Thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who swallowed up death. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.